Hi, this is Paul. A couple of weeks ago on Twitter, I had a little brief exchange with Brett Weinstein. He had tweeted uh, that he'd looked at Rationality Rules video about metaphorical truth and um, liked it. And I probably unwisely, but just sort of reactively tweeted, oh boy. And he responded, and I'm always amazed when some of these six-figure Twitter follower people can actually look at their at replies. Um, and he said, I don't know, Paul, rationality rule seems on board with metaphorical truth as it relates to religion. I know this is not where you come, come out, but I wonder if the needed conversation isn't taking place. So this video is in the spirit of continuing that conversation. So Brett can watch it, Rationality Rules can watch it, anybody can watch it. It's on YouTube, it's there, free for the watching. So let's walk through some of this and add some stuff that's been in the conversation lately that I think is super helpful. So his metaphorical truth argument basically goes like this, and I hope I uh, represent it faithfully. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, some, and he's, he's discussed this on Joe Rogan, uh, the conversations with Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Just recently, he's been doing live streams with his wife, and he discussed it briefly in one of those. Usually, whenever he talks about it, someone will, will send, me a, send me a note or something, say, hey, he talked about metaphorical truth. So I appreciate all the little um, Twitter. I, actually, I've grown to... I've grown to appreciate Twitter. It can be a valuable tool if you don't get caught up in the drama, so which is hard to do, and I know I have in the past, but um, it's 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 valuable because it's it's linkified, it's brief, and it works fairly well. Anyway, his metaphorical truth argument goes something like this: something that is literally false. This is what he'd call metaphorical truth, and some people don't like the, the reason the that he uses truth there. Something that is literally false, but offers an adaptive advantage, okay? And three, I've mostly heard him use three illustrations, and I think they're good illustrations. Uh, porcupines throwing their quills, they don't. They detach easily, and the quills have little barbs on them. A little simple Wikipedia search or YouTube search will show that. So they're, they tend to, you know, they get in you, but they don't actually throw them, okay? Uh, gun safety. You know, double checking to make sure that the gun is, even though you just unloaded the gun and cleaned it or whatever, before you hand it to someone, you always check and make sure there's no bullet in the gun and it won't fire, okay? Before pointing at someone, so on and so forth. I'm not a gun person, so, um, yeah. Boxing Day Tsunami that he uses as an illustration. And we'll look at all three illustrations in this. Religions are filled with beliefs and practices that offer adaptive advantages like these metaphorical truths, even if they're not literary, um, literally true. And we're going to deal with this word literally because there are some big issues with it. Now, along the way, someone had pointed me to the video channel Dark Matter 2525, and he's an illustrator, not an illustrator, he's a cartoonist, let's say. And he has a lot of cartoons ripping on religion in the Bible, and I know I'm not supposed to enjoy them, but I did. I enjoyed, I thought it's clever. And so here, of course, you have the Christian God, or the Hebrew God, or the God of the Bible, however you want to do. He's the guy with the robes and the hair and the beard. And in this particular one, you have, um, you have Saruman. And then you have Jeffrey, who's sort of a little angel that... that flaps by and they have conversations and they talk about passages in the Bible, so on and so forth. 
And this is a channel that, again, sort of mocks religious people and mocks the Bible and tries to make um, it seem simply ridiculous, okay? And uh, word of warning, not all religious people are as easily triggered or offended or reactive as others. We're, we're all sort of on a spectrum here. But it's a kind of a good illustration to get at this question of God, capital G, lowercase g, gods, angels, demons, spirits, etc. All right. So these are the kinds of things that certain kinds of atheists will strongly assert do not exist. So said, let's let's define some terms. An atheist would say these things don't exist. Some secularists will say that. Non-theists, John Vervecchia had a a talk on the awakening from the meaning crisis discord this morning I asked some questions about that non-theists are in a little bit a little bit different camp and i'd love to see john verveke uh talking in this space a little bit more um not that he isn't but i'd love to see him depending on if john wants to of course in, in some of these conversations john and i have spoken a number of time i'm a theist john is a non-theist and I think we've had a number of really productive conversations, and one of the things we're doing in our little corner of the internet, as we're sort of calling it, is, is having a lot of, I think, really productive conversations over some of these lines. Now, celebrity atheists will often bring out something called a hyperactive agency detector. And in the subtraction story, it goes something like this, that, well, we have in us... Well, basically, the cautious primate evades the stalking leopard because the bush moves and the primate immediately thinks agency. Well, maybe there's a leopard in the bush, and this is an adaptive advantage that has afforded our ancestors the capacity to outlive others who don't have it. And this hyperactive agency detector sort of gets its gaze is cast up to the sky. And so when we see patterns, we see movement, we see agency. And we project agency up into the sky even when there is none. All there is is the movement of nature. Okay, That's also not as simple of a term as people would like to imagine. And if you've been on my channel a while, you know we talk about these things. So we're imagining agents in the sky, and this affords an adaptive advantage. And so what God, what we imagine God or the gods or angels or demons or spirits and all these kinds of things are simply projections of human beings with their hyperactive agency detector. And that's how we can account for all of this personification, this projection. If you'll see the little picture of God here, he sort of looks like an old man so on and so forth. But today we know better because we know these things don't exist. How we know these things don't exist? Can't really answer that because they're not, they don't exist in the way that my cell phone holder exists. And you know, sometimes they pop in and out, so on and so forth. But the assertion is they don't exist. Okay, fine, that's sort of the argument. Now, for those of you who are who have not been following along in my voluminous catalog of videos, as I think through these things out loud, ideas come up as I make videos, which is actually why I make them, because every video I'll think of something new that I didn't think of, even when I planned the video, and I want it recorded, and I share it. And for some strange reason, they're um, a grateful reason for me, there seems to be a 
small and devoted group of people out there who like thinking along with me. And one of the things that I came up with once is sort of group A and group B, two types of things in the universe. Now, things in group A are things that are colonizable. They're non-intentional agents. Um, they're, they're sometimes dead things, like my, like my cell phone carrier. Now, panpsychists need not apply to this. Um, panpsychism, I'm going to lay it over someplace else because that's a whole other conversation. I'm not a panpsychist. Materialists think the whole universe can be reduced to a long causal chain of these things, even living things. So anything that we might experience as group B type things, colonizing agents, intentional agents, living things, well, are really just group A things that have sort of scaled up. All right. Now, C.S. Lewis addresses a number of these issues in his book was written in the 40s. So some of it is dated. But Basically, C.S. Lewis says, well, that's the whole show. That's basically certain kinds of materialists assert all there is is matter, and matter is the whole show. Matter and physics define everything. Everything can be explained by matter and physics, okay? And if you want a more detailed description of that, read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. And even though some people have read it, have said it's challenging because it is a bit philosophical. It is written for laypersons, and C.S. Lewis really excelled in trying to make some of these philosophical ideas approachable, even if you yourself are not necessarily given to enjoying these things. So that's the whole show. And in previous videos, I talked about the two, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, talked about two spirits in a sense. There's the spirit of geometry, which is sort of the mathematical mind, which is sort of the left brain. I'm dyslexic, so I often get these things confused. And which is in the Ian McGilchrist idea, sort of the, the part of the brain that takes, that, that tries to bring order, tries to get things down to propositions, tries to get things down into causal relationships that are clean and certain and reliable. And then, of course, there's the right brain, which is the kind, is the side of the brain that looks at the broad patterns. And as Jordan Peterson talked about, you've got known and unknown territory. Okay, so we can use some Ian McGilchrist brain mapping on some of this. So group B, again, are these things in the universe that colonize other things on purpose and for purpose. For example, the creatures that, creatures or beings or human beings or whatever label you want to give, because all of them are loaded in one way or another. So the ones that made the cell stand that could, that could mine, that could mine, I think this is made of some kind of steel, it's a little... It's a little, well, it might be aluminum, I don't know, I, I don't think so. Um, but it's, but could mine the minerals and shape it and form it. And in a sense, these minerals, these dead things, these group A things were colonized by group B things such as human beings. And we bring purpose to the conversation. We bring intentionality. Um, again, you might look at um, Whitehead's famous, I didn't put the link in it, but see this thing as I think of things while I'm talking, Whitehead's famous essays on rationality, Alfred North Whitehead. Many of these things are complex, okay? Um, and along the way, we've started talking about principalities, which are sort of non-physical, hard to describe them, again, principalities. Uncle Sam is one of them, okay? Uh, how real is Uncle Sam? Well, 
Uncle Sam makes you pay your taxes. Uncle Sam mobilizes people to do different things. And so what we're, where we're really going to stretch in here is, okay, what, what's included in this group things that we call Group B? Um, and they're fractalicious, I like to say, because Uncle Sam is sort of like a human being, but you, know, you can't go anywhere and lay hands on Uncle Sam, yet Uncle Sam has power and Uncle Sam has dominion. Um, Uncle Sam is sort of like a human being, but not exactly like Paul Vanderclay. Doesn't have skin on him. Sometimes people, sometimes people will instantiate Uncle Sam. I remember as a kid in Fourth of July celebrations, someone would come out and there was Uncle Sam. Jonathan Peugeot likes to use the example of Santa Claus. So, you know, these are Group B type things that are operating in our world. So Group A are colonizable things, and Group B are colonizing things. And and you'll, if you think through these categories, you'll see that, well, there's, there's some things going back and forth between these categories. Now, I talked about some of this in the very long, my one of my longest videos I've ever done, Religiosity is the IDW's Final Frontier. Um, and so we're going to get into this word religious a little bit, not too much in this video. Then we come along this word persons, and increasingly this word is getting, is a subject of interest for me. And, you know, it's it's sort of interesting how all of these conversations that I've been doing and, and the people that have been following the conversations and engaging in their own conversations, how Trinitarian issues arise. It's been very interesting. So so persons are group B, persons are elements of, of our group B, consciousy, okay, so we're not fully conscious, but we're consciousy, and purposive agents. I immediately, you know, want to pick up my cell phone and holder and I can move it around and I can tap on it. I'm doing all these things on purpose. And, and these things, some of them have hyperactive agency detectors and they're always on the lookout for threats. And again, if you look at Jordan Peterson in uh, Personality 2017, number 12, when Peterson talks about really the phenomenologists and Heidegger, that, that's really a nice condensation of a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff because he talks about the fact that basically cognitive science or at least what Jordan Peterson is studying makes the makes the observation that we even though we think we see objects objects come relatively late in the perceptual game what we see much more directly are threats and opportunities, and objects get colored with those kinds of ideas. A simple illustration of this is if I remember when I was a kid, I was playing on the school playground, and a kickball or something came through the air and hit me in the head, and I didn't see it, and I didn't duck. But if I had seen it, I would have ducked, I would have flinched, but that would not have... The conscious mind comes online set a little bit longer. In other words, built into me are these mechanisms that keep me safe and consciousness comes a little bit later, okay? So we react, we see threats and opportunities before we see objects, before we have a lot of cognition about them. And in fact, Jordan will push this further that the truth is, when I came into my office this morning, if, I've used this illustration before too, if there were a Bengal tiger in the office, I would see that before I would see 
maybe um, a statue of gold that was sitting on my desk. Why? Because the Bengal tiger would have been immediately perceived as a threat and the statue of gold as an opportunity, but I jump back. Same with a snake. Let's say there's a coiled up snake on my office. Nobody get any idea, please. Um, I jump back immediately, and you, people have this all the time. I live out in the West in the U.S., and you're, you're, you're scrambling around. You see something, you jump back, or you know, go to YouTube and find the cucumber cat videos. You know, slide in a cucumber, the cat jumps back. It's just a cucumber. Why is the cat afraid of a cucumber? Well, something in the cat makes interprets it perhaps as a serpent, jumps back. Chimps that are raised. It's a a fun Jordan Peterson illustration. Chimps that are raised in captivity are afraid of snakes, even if they've never seen one. And you think, what, the, um, you know, somewhere there was a public service announcement telling chips about the dangers of snakes? No. Stuff is wired into us. And the imagination that we're somehow these simple, rational observers who observe the world, science doesn't afford that anymore. And... Actually, if you look at the conversations Jordan Peterson had with Sam Harris, especially Vancouver One, Peterson continues to try to lay this out for Sam. And Sam basically either denies it or says it doesn't apply or that's not what's what he wants to talk about. But he didn't see the relevance of these little facts for this conversation. Okay, And they're very relevant when we get into this conversation. Well, metaphorical truth. So... We bring purpose into systems, and again, Jordan laid this out in Vancouver One, and this is, it was in Vancouver One towards the end when I saw Jordan Peterson, well, what God do you believe in? And he starts laying out these things, and as a classical theist, I recognize many of these things that he's talking about. There's newfangled attachments to them, but they're not unrecognizable for someone who's had a little bit of education in theism. Sam Harris has doesn't have an education in theism. He says, oh, that's not God. And that's where you get God number one and God number two. And go back over my videos and you'll find them or go to the Discord server. They put together a little glossary. And, and here's the thing. These persons, we usually approach with the spirit of finesse. And you can find lots of YouTube videos about these kinds of things. Um, one of my favorites was the dude sitting on the couch and there's a pile of laundry there. And he's like, I always put my dirty clothes on the coffee table and they come back folded and clean. And of course, the wife scowls at him. Uh, dude, you want a little bit of marital advice? Approach your wife with a spirit of finesse because she's awfully subtle and awfully powerful. And if you don't respect her, things will go poorly. Same with a coiled up snake. Um, there's not a lot of danger in the old cell phone holder. It's just kind of here. But persons and agents, we would say that snakes have a degree of agency in them, we'll approach them with the spirit of finesse. That's the most appropriate way to approach them. Now, to clean up a little bit of anticipated celebrity atheist fodder, the God of the Hebrews, I'm using a Jewish book here, the God of the Hebrews is not like Thor or Zeus. That's I know that's a that's kind of a 300 level class here, but watch um, okay, uh, Christine Hayes at Yale lecture about Kaufman's Meta Divine Realm. She lays it out pretty nicely. How 
Biblical monotheism is not exactly just a reduction of common polytheism, which means that the God of the Hebrews has aspects of the agent and the arena. And that if you look at Greek polytheism, uh, Babylonian polytheism, Egyptian polytheism, almost all of these polytheistic systems posit what Christine Christine Hayes, professor at Yale, if you want a nice secular credential, or Ezekiel Kaufman notes are, well, they're subject to what they call a metadivine realm. The Hebrews don't have this system. And once you see this distinction and you read the Hebrew Bible, it becomes clear. Now, the Hebrew Bible is complicated, and so Ezekiel Kaufman had to write a lot about this. But and I, by the way, a number of you have said that you've wanted to purchase this book. The book is out of print. And unfortunately, I think the people who are watching my videos have rated all the cheap copies. So the only ones used that are available are for a lot of money on Amazon. So sorry about that. It's not mine to... You don't really have to read the whole book. Watch Christine Hayes's just one one-hour YouTube will give you a sense of what Ezekiel Kaufman is saying about all this stuff. And a number of people have said, well, there's a lot more going on, and I'm sure there is, but to get this point, that the God of the Hebrews is not Thor or Zeus, is a really important point, and something that when celebrity atheists sit down with someone with some knowledge, like a Bishop Barron, um, uh, Roland Williams... Uh, people with a little bit of knowledge about Christian theology and history and philosophy will usually very calmly and politely make this point, but this is just such a this is such a happy point that celebrity atheists can make, they just keep making it. But it's bogus. Um, it misrepresents what the Bible and the Hebrews and the Christians and the Muslims, I don't know much about Muslim theology, but believe. And so cartoons of an old man... Uh, Michelangelo calling you out, buddy. Um, I don't think that very famous image of God as an old man is helping the situation. Um, the Now I'm maybe sounding like a Dutch Calvinist iconoclast, but that, that commandment, you shall not make a graven image, um, you know... To my knowledge, Jonathan Peugeot is not going to make an image of God the Father. Jesus, well, Jesus is a different story. Um, biblical characters, angels, sure. But what we're referring to with the Hebrew scriptures of God, the reason you shouldn't make a representation of God is because it will always be a deduction of what the Hebrew scriptures are talking about. And that's why they're even careful about the language. They're even careful about the words because they understand that all of these representations are reduction because of what they're trying to communicate when they're talking about this. And so, hence my God number one and God number view number two um, terminology. Now, Adam Friended has been trolling rationality rules for a while now, and now, just lately on today on Twitter, he's been trolling Bausch. But one of the points that Adam continues to make about, about the celebrity atheist, now, Adam considers himself an atheist, but he's not an anti-theist. 
Adam thinks religion is good for people. Why? I've not watched as many celebrity atheist videos as a number of you have watched, but I seldom hear celebrity atheists deal with Durkheim because they want to sort of condemn religion for a list of reasons that they usually trot out, but they don't usually contend with Durkheim. And this is why, this is sort of where Adam fits in because Adam always brings a Durkheimian sensitivity to religion later uh, into his videos. And let's read some of these um, quotations and summaries of Durkheim. According to Emil Durkheim, all religions divide social life into two spheres, the sacred and the profane. There is nothing intrinsic about a particular object which makes it sacred. Now we're going to you know, watch John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis to get into some of these questions about category, and he nicely walks through a lot of history in that. An object becomes sacred only when the community invests it with that meaning. Now that's a fairly modernist materialist frame but the reason i bring durkheim in here is because he shouldn't scare off a lot of materialists or atheists his his arguments are basically atheist safe okay he is looking in many ways he's the father of sociology and he's looking at human beings and thinking about this strange word religion and thinking well what what, what are we really talking about what from a from a scientific evidentialist perspective when we look at groups of people rather than individuals and their beliefs what kinds of things do we notice religion is an eminently collective thing 1954 it serves to bind a community together which is something that adam keeps bringing up again and again a religion is a unified system of belief and practices relative to sacred things that is to say Things set apart and forbidden, beliefs and practices which unite into a single community called a church, or not always a church. Uh, look at my look at the observations by Robert Putnam in American Grace in terms of how religious groups, when they come to North America and the United States, tend to congregationalize. Okay, so so Durkheim's writing, you know, a number of years ago, but the points are good, even if the language is a little outdated. All those, who adhere, all those who adhere to them. The believer who has communicated with his God is not merely a man who sees truths of which the unbeliever is ignorant. He is a man who is stronger. He feels within him more force, whither to endure the trials of existence and to conquer them. Here's something that Jordan Peterson could have written, okay? Because even though I don't hear Peterson talk about Durkheim a whole lot, don't do what makes you weak. Do what makes you strong. And so there's some alignment there. Thus, there is something eternal in religion, which is destined to survive all the particular symbols which religious thought has succeeded to envelop them. There can be no society which does not feel the need of upholding and reaffirming at regular intervals the collective sentiments and the collective ideas which make its unity and its personality. In other words, even if you take all of these things 
that we associate as being religious, irreligious people that want to group will do many of the same things that religious people have done, but substitute different symbols for them. And this is something that a lot of honest atheists have been noting for a while now, that when people give up their religious things that are associated with religious formal religions, organized religions, traditional religions, however you mention them, they begin picking up other ideas and they act religiously, okay? And lately in my videos, I've been spending a lot of time getting at that because there's some issues we have to work through. And now, in a sense, as societies get more secular, things, other things come in that people begin to act religiously about. Just on Twitter a minute ago, I was having some conversation with Esther and some others that, in fact, people who denounce purity culture very quickly wind up setting up purity cultures of their own over different sacred things. And, and we're finding this with Me Too, with a whole bunch of things that have sort of triggered responses that, well, you know, me too about Donald Trump. Well, what about Joe Biden and Tara Reid? Is it, it is it, is it, is it valid? On and on and on and on you can go. And and what you find is that people keep tripping over these things. Now I've been finding, and, and I made the comment on Twitter today that it's interesting that it seems easier to understand this kind of thing if you do the kind of symbolic thinking that Jonathan Peugeot has been promoting. Things seem these kinds of dynamics seem to make more sense if you approach them symbolically rather than sort of linguistic rationally, it, because you find these these sort of inversion moments. And what Jonathan tends to be able to do is say, "Well, here's 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 an image that kind of sets at the heart of it, and you can see how this image has two sides and two faces. You can see that." the conservative youth who are the rebels become the authoritarian adults who abide no rebels. And, and those who are most pronounced about sexual liberty very quickly create their own purity cultures around, and you begin to look at them and think, well, you are just denouncing purity culture, but the thing you're setting up looks an awfully looks a lot like a new purity culture and we've seen this with you know, my conversation with James Lindsay really turned me on to the idea that what happened with celebrity atheists is sort of their there was a division in there some of those following them sort of went to the mythopoetic Jordan Peterson strain others took the branch towards more social justice warrior stuff well, why? Well, I would argue that there's meaning in both directions. And that's sort of the weakness of Jordan Peterson's meaning as an internal gyroscope. Um, and, and I think in some ways this follows. Yes, thank you for you who sent me this book. Lots of people send me books now. Can't keep up with them, but the gift is nice. Um, I haven't read it yet. Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. And so Viktor Frankl, who, of course, endured the, the terrors of Nazi death camps, founded a psychological school that invited people to find meaning and pursue your meaning. So, you know, Jordan Peterson exploded on the scene, but many have noted that, well, 
there's some Victor Frankl in there. There's some Joseph Campbell in there. There's obviously a lot of Jung in there. There's, excuse me, there's Solzhenitsyn. There's Jordan Peterson is using, and he'll name those names fairly regularly, uh, Nietzsche, um, Piaget. Again, watch his class lectures. They're really good. And there's a reason he, um, you know, he deserved the attention that, that he got. So, again, back to my main point of this slide. Adam Friends trolls rationality rules and the other anti-theists by basically saying, um, Durkheim, are you really going to talk about religion and not talk about Durkheim and those who have followed him like Jonathan Haidt? Religion is the mechanism by which communities cooperate in order to compete and prevail over their ones. And Adam and I talked about, Adam posed the bold hypothesis that Nazi Germany failed, lost World War II because their society was deficient was deficient in its, now he didn't say religiosity, but in its worldview. Um, it kept tripping over some of the core tenets, I would argue, of Nazi of Nazi ideology. But go back and look at my some of the videos I've done on the Nazis. Up your resolution, read someone like Timothy Snyder and note that they weren't just racists. There's stuff beneath Nazi ideology, assertions, a lot of it social Darwinianism. Okay, um, So religion in the broadest sense of the word and the platform upon which their political philosophy and behavior was formed. Uh, the last monologue video I did Monday, I released Monday, talked about how there's religious language and there's political language. And one of the things that we're I'm continuing to work on is upping the resolution on the dynamic interchange between politics and religion. Or, very interesting new one for me, progress and religion, thanks to Eric Weinstein and Russ, on Ross Douthat. And, and I noted that Brett has been talking some of these same things. Okay, back to Brett. Yeah, if my videos take a little while to unfold, they're not three three minute things. People on the Discord server, the Bridges of Meaning Discord server, are trying to figure out how to make Paul Vanderclay a little bit more saleable and little bite sized chunks of my stuff so that the learning curve isn't so dramatic. And this is something John Verveke and I have in common. Okay, what are my issues about this word literal? literally true i understand the term i understand the turn of phrase has some real difficulties in because well what kind of picture are we conjuring up when we think about this well i'd say usually what people mean are a limited variable non-complex causal relationship that is reasonably transparent to empirical investigation and reproducibility in other words the kinds of things that science is really good at figuring out. How do you know whether or not a porcupine throws its quills? Well, you get a porcupine, and you study the porcupine, and you learn that even though if you brush up against it, that quill might get caught in your hand and maybe cause an infection, it didn't really throw the quill. But that rumor, that metaphorical truth of throwing the quill keeps people safe. Same thing with the gun. These are things we can predict and even sometimes reproduce depending on the kind of thing. And the point I'm making here is that the kinds of things that we imagine this label literally true can be pasted onto is limited. In fact, 
it's scarily limited, all right? And usually we're thinking about in terms of association. And so we say, well, it's not literally true that a porcupine can throw its quills. True. I would, I would argue that it's not physically true. And now we're sort of dialing up the resolution and saying, okay, well, laws of physics, at least the laws that we know, and we're talking about the physical space. So it is physically true that porcupines, to the best of our knowledge, according to all the porcupines that we've known and studied, and they don't throw their quills. They just are really easy to get stuck in people who try to do things or animals that try to eat them. Okay, it's a defense mechanism. Gun safety. It's it's really important. It's metaphorically true, but not physically true that you indulge in this useful fiction that always double check a gun before you point it at anyone or so on and so forth. And I'm sure uh, someone in Hollywood who works on this kind of th stuff could run me through all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes for all these cop shows because they have people specially trained and certified to handle these kinds of things because they're very dangerous. And of course, a good conversation that I had talked about Nassim Tlaib and risk management into all of these things, okay? But let's look at the Boxing Day tsunami case because the assertion is that it's not literally true that spirits are moving the water. Uh, that's not a claim science can make. Science, there's no limited variable, non-complex, causal relationship that is reasonably transparent to empirical vest investigations and reproducible in a case like that. You can't know. You're going to have to be agnostic. You might say, I don't believe it. That's fine. No or not no about any of these imagined causative spiritual forces. These are matters of assertion, not science. And I think most honest scientists will at least say, well, there's no evidence one way or the other, so we can't weigh in. I'm willing to live in that middle space. And we're going to talk about spirits a little bit more. The traditional belief system, here's an assertion for you. The traditional belief system outperformed the scientific belief system in terms of delivering predictability and survival adaptation to the culture. All right. So let's imagine there's these little tribes of people that have this idea about the spirits and the waters and all of that. And then there's these other people that don't share that belief system. Well, a lot of people drown there, but none of these people. That's the point of the illustration. It's metaphorically true that the spirits move the waters. Okay, I can live with that. It's metaphorically true. Now, when you go say it's not literally true, now you're saying more than you know. At best, you can say, we can't talk about the spirits. We'll only talk about the metaphorical truth. So in a sense, in that room, we'll talk about this, but the spirits probably won't show up in court. Okay, And so here in the West, we have these ideas about public space, private space. You can talk about metaphorical truth in private space. Public space, well, you might have legislation about practices with respect to guns. You might have legislation with respect to physical things taught in classrooms. I'm not a, I'm not a culture warrior on a bunch of these prayer and public school things. Never have been. 
So I'm willing to talk about those different, those distinctions. It's not my area of specialty. But I do want to note that if the purpose of the story, whether it's your scientific story, tectonic plates, or your religious cultural story, spirits moving in the waters, one outperformed the other according to the purpose of the story. Who chose the purpose of the story? Like it's really hard because we're not thinking in those terms very often. But science cannot address spirits, but the traditional story outperformed the secular story if the goal of the story was to provide well provide for the welfare of those who inhabit the story. And I want to bring in a little John Verveke here. Um, he has his 50-episode hour-long series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Some of those episodes are return-watch episodes for me, and of one of them, 26 and 27 are, of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Problem formulation. And in 26, he sort of pivots from history of philosophy into cognitive science. And he talks about what a problem is. And I found this terrifically helpful. And the longer that, since I've watched these videos, the more it ruminates in my head. And that's sort of how I think, okay, that's a really helpful thing for me to think through. So then I go back to the videos and I rewatch. You have your initial state and your goal state. How do you get from one to the other? Now, of course, cognitive science sort of came up along with computing and robotics and artificial intelligence and all of these things. Because people have goals. Group B things have goals. Snakes have goals. Animals have goals. Does a tsunami have a goal? So we have group A and group B. So you have the initial state and the goal state. The goal state, now purpose is embedded in that idea because you're trying to get to this goal on purpose, is, man, is a manifest image thing. And we're going to be talking about Wilfred Sellers' ideas of the scientific image and the manifest image. And look at Daniel Bonavac's um, instructional video on that, which is often linked to a lot of mine. It'll be linked on this one too, and I'll mention it a little bit later. So goal states are purposive things. They're things of group B, okay? They're chosen by group B type things, all right? And it could be a bird looking to nest, and so finding the right things. Um, why do crows, you know, pick up shiny things, so on and so forth. There's, there's some purpose going on in there, and so these are group B type things. Now, between the initial state and the goal state, there are path constraints. Um, maybe if you want to get rid of COVID-19 and you notice that there's alcohol in hand sanitizers and you know that there's alcohol in vodka, maybe if you drink vodka, it'll kill the COVID in your body, just like the alcohol in the hand sanitizer will kill the virus. Kill. Is the virus alive? We'll deal with the virus on your hand. True or not true? Well, these are these path constraints. Drinking a lot of alcohol might help you forget the pandemic lockdown, but it probably won't do much for your health. Um, if you look at Saturday Night Live, cold open, graduation, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So path constraints. And when it comes to medicine, there are a whole lot of path constraints. Yeah, you can give people stuff that'll kill the virus and it will kill them. So doctors and the scientific community spend a great deal of time and money working on these path constraints. How can we 
get rid of the virus and not get rid of the host. All right. Combinatorial explosiveness, and Verveke illustrates that there, where actually the world is enormously complex and things start getting explosive very easily when you start trying things. And so it's not the case that we just try everything, sort of like the mythic idea of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison tried a lot of things to make the light bulb, but he didn't try everything, okay? So, and so what we do is we narrow things down. And that's what happens with our cognition. We narrow things down. And so when we think, well, what can I take to maybe fight the virus? Vodka? No. Maybe vitamin D. Maybe I should go out in the sun. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So again, we're dealing with some of these things. But we're talking about general intelligence for general problem solving. This is where consciousness comes in. Because consciousness is able to be aware of path constraints on the fly all right and this is where training and culture and of course brett talks about we have these two tracks and i think that's a terrific way to talk about it we have the genetic track and then we have the culture track and the culture track is really helpful in limiting the big world down and saying well alcohol maybe uh now nah, maybe eat an orange or drink some vitamin d milk that might be even better than than the vodka. You might, you know, try use the vodka on your skin, but down your gullet, not so much with the COVID. Consciousness is able to be aware of path constraints on the fly as they emerge because the world is too massive and we are too small to know in advance. And so, well, these kinds of things work. These other kinds of things, again, look at Verveke's categorization and we do these things. And of course, he walks through this stuff with in his course about cognitive science. Let's get back to this funny word, spirit. Now, you know what this word means, and because I'm a pastor, I grew a sensitivity because I'm working with people in church and we get high resolution with these kinds of things, and people would often kind of lob the, well, that's a spiritual thing. And eventually I begin to become a bit of a nudge with people, say, well, what do you mean by that word, spirit? And I find people don't know what they mean by that word spirit. Well, do a little bit more thinking. You do a little bit of historical reading and you find we kind of know what this word means and we kind of know it like a lot of people know it. Well, remember we had group A and group B? Spirits are kind of group B. These are causal agencies beneath or behind the material world we observe. Now, again, if you go back to some of the earlier talks with Verveke, he talks about Aristotle and a formal cause. And I know it gets a little philosophical. No, Adam doesn't like philosophy. But, but you get into the thing that says, well, well, how is this formed the way it is? Now, we wouldn't say there's nothing too terribly spiritual behind it unless we started talking about why all of a sudden Americans need cell phone holders. Something spiritual going on beyond that. It's And Owen Barfield, again, a name that comes up probably not often enough in my videos, gets into these questions about spirit and wind. He makes the observation that he's got these ideas about evolution of consciousness Anybody who reads even, let's say, the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, Ruach, notes that spirit and wind are the same word. 
Oh, that's kind of funny. Why would spirit and wind be the same word? In English, we wouldn't be in danger of getting these words confused unless we were speaking terribly poetically. But right there in the New Testament, any first-year seminary student learning Greek for the first time, if your seminary is still teaching Greek, which it should, uh, begins to notice, why does wind and spirit? And then maybe go over to John 3 and notice that Jesus actually talks about them at the same time and differentiates the sense of them, even though they're the same words in Greek. And we all sort of know what he's talking about. Just like the wind, the spirit, and in the English Bibles, it'll be two separate words, but not in the Greek. The spirit blows where it wills. You see what it does in the world, but you don't see it. You don't see wind. You only see what the wind blows. Now, this Sunday is Pentecost. So I'll be thinking about these things. So, and this is, this idea of spirit is still lurking beneath our common use of the word. And once you become aware of it and you begin to realize the importance of this, you start hearing it. It's the salience thing, you know? Like when I bought a Subaru, I began to notice how many other blue Subarus there were on the road. Didn't notice it before I bought a blue Subaru. Then I noticed it. Well, once you start to realize this funny thing about this word spirit, well, we use it all the time. And atheists use it all the time and non-theists use it all the time and people use it all the time even when they're trying to debunk christianity and things like this so read c.s lewis's the discarded image there was well aristotle's the spheres and all of this stuff that the medieval sort of translated down from the classical period and this image has been discarded and and lewis will note rightfully so but a lot was lost when we lost this, and a lot of our language built around this. And so, as Brett Weinstein will say, we have a lot of legacy code here. And here's the thing with legacy code. Um, so there's a guy in my church who's looking for a job, and he's not looking for a job in this, but he noted that he's about my age, and when I was going to college, people studying computer science studied COBOL. A lot of systems still use COBOL, these old systems that are still out there in the world. And people don't necessarily want to replace these systems or recode all of this because the stuff still works. And that, of course, keeps DOS lurking under Windows and so on and so forth. So all this legacy code is built in. Now you might say, well, abandon this legacy code. <laughs> you're going to have to abandon the English language because you're not going to get rid of this stuff. It's not going anywhere. And, in fact, it's still useful if you begin to think about it. Illustration of this, I bet you the celebrity atheists never paused a moment when they thought about school spirit. And they would be hard-pressed to think of a new word besides spirit when they're talking about the thing they're talking about when they're talking about school spirit. Now, the beauty of this, now I'm a pastor, so I engage and try to engage in metaphors that are broadly understood culturally because ideal pastor i'm a generalist i deal with broad groups of people not just people who can make it into college but people who work with their hands and people who've never been to college and people who are mentally disabled and people who are all levels of people that's what i work with because i'm a pastor let's think about school spirit why do we use that word that way well let's ask a bunch of questions is school spirit something we control I think a lot of high school principals and teachers would love to imagine they control school spirit, 
but they'd readily admit that they don't. Is it something we influence? Yeah. You have pep rallies. You decorate the school in such a way. You, in fact, architecturally design the school in such a way as to impact school spirit. When you look at, when you start making a list of all the kinds of things that influence school spirit, well, you can be working on that list for a very long time indeed. And every single school will have different components of this idea of school spirit that influences it. And yet we use this word spirit. It's not something we control. It is something we influence. Is it something we participate in? Oh yes, we certainly do. And so the stewards of school spirit, whether they be the class president or the principal or the teacher or the parents or the police commissioner, will do things in order to participate it and move it in the, now values are creeping in, we're in the manifest image, right direction. You're not going to talk about the right direction in the scientific image. Is it something that moves people and changes behavior? Absolutely. That's why school administrators and principals and teachers and parents and students are all very interested in school spirit and why they devote money to it and why they devote time to it and why it's an item of concern for them because go to a school with a healthy, there's another metaphor, school spirit and students will be blessed by that, could be for their lifelong. Go to a school in which the school spirit is unhealthy, it's a tough thing. One of the things that formed young Clive Staples Lewis's life was he went to schools that had an unhealthy school spirit and we're not exactly sure the kinds of sexual molestation that were allowed and practiced in those schools. But school spirit was a very bad thing for C.S. Lewis and he very much wanted out of some of those schools that he was subjected to. Is this something that, that can be deeply consequential for individuals, communal and historical trajectory? Absolutely. I think almost any of us, if we sat down and we thought long enough about our life path or maybe sat down with a, with a good psychologist, would start talking about the schools we went to and the spirits that formed and shaped us for better or for worse, most often for both. Marshall Mitchell is a woman in my church. She is in her 80s. She's an African-American woman who grew up in the Deep South. And during Jim Crow, the state of Louisiana was undergoing some heat about, well, board versus, you know, um, Brown versus Board of Education, separate is not equal, um, undergoing some heat because of this. And so the state of Louisiana decided to build a model school for Negroes. And she went to this school and she learned horticulture. And um, Marshall Mitchell, um, sometimes my kids would have an assignment from their school that they had to find an older African-American person and listen to their stories. And Marshall's a great storyteller. And so Marshall will tell her stories. And Marshall eventually went on to become one of the first African-American school principals in the Sacramento area. Um, she's members of two churches, even though know, you're not supposed to do that. She's a Bolton secretary here. She's, um, she's an amazing woman. 
She was shaped by that model Jim Crow school. And having conversations with Marshall about Jim Crow is a very high-resolution thing to do. Um, but school spirit shaped her in very complex ways. Is school spirit alive? Well, that's kind of a hard question. Is school spirit a person? That's kind of a hard question. Now, it's easy to say no and no. But the longer you work on these things, the tougher these questions get. Is school spirit part of group B? Spirit versus tectonic plates. You have two models of language and conceptualization. Both have advantages and disadvantages. Advantages of our scientific model are obvious to many of us today. It's a powerful model, okay? And its power makes its value obvious to us. The disadvantages of those models were exposed by the loss of life in that tsunami. What are the advantages of the traditional religious model? It's clearly durable through many generations, even rather impervious to secular systems. I'm sure there were a number of people who were holding that model who were quite cross-pressured by secularity, disenchantment, whichever way you want to talk about it, but in the back of their minds had the spirit stories working and thought, better safe than sorry, run to high ground, and were saved by it. Afterwards, might not have been so quick to dismiss these stories. There's a model and a system there that proved dramatically durable and reliable secular systems notwithstanding. The secular system was less able to save than the traditional religious system. You see, part of that power of that old religious, cultural, spiritual system was that it was embedded within story and embedded in a worldview that afforded meaning, community, survivability, ecology of practice, a bunch of the terms that I can use of Verveke's religion that isn't a religion that he's working towards, and it endured for many generations. In fact, it obviously afforded a survivability advantage, which is why Brett Weinstein picked up on it. And it exposed the weaknesses of the scientific model. The scientific model is very young. The scientific model is not well storified. The scientific model is very expensive. What I mean by that? Year after year, people were formed and shaped by the spiritual model very easily, very commonly, very inexpensively. School is expensive. School pulls you out of life. In really good conversation between Benjamin Boyce and Brett Weinstein, Brett was complaining about schools. Well, a lot of what Brett was complaining about, the alternative system has. And Brett knows this. He's well-traveled in the developing world. Um, but we scientific, secular people with all of the power on display from our systems, have been a little blind to the power of these traditional systems. And I wouldn't count these systems out. Just like, well, look around Chernobyl. See how fast the weeds started to uproot the modernist architecture and cement slabs.
I hate to sound like Morpheus, or maybe I don't hate to, but uh, Morpheus makes the point to Neo in The Matrix that you have been groomed. So that's usually religious people groom their children. <laughs> Two tracks, remember? Everybody's groomed, everybody's set up, everybody's educated, and for the best of intentions, often. Here's this powerful system that we wish to train our children in. But as Brett noted to Benjamin Boyce, well, actually, I had this conversation with my wife a couple days. There was this pass-along going on in Facebook, and someone made the comment about those born in 1900. Look at the suffering they saw. I was talking to my wife about that. She made the comment that her grandmother was born in 1900. My grandparents born in, like, 1903, 1905. Her grandmother was born in 1900. Her, brain, her grandmother knew she was really good in a garden. So were my grandparents. Her grandmother knew how to make her own clothes. Her grandmother knew how to can stuff because the garden produces all kinds of stuff at one time and you're going to have to eat that throughout the year, so you're going to can. Her grandfather built houses. I don't know how to build a house. Her grandfather and her grandmother, you know, when, the, when stuff goes down here, they're awful good pandemic buddies because they got skills. And you know what? By the time I was born in the 60s, my parents didn't teach me canning. My father, my father wasn't real good at some of this stuff. My father was an intellectual. My father was a preacher. We differentiate in society. My grandfather, now he was good at gardening because during the middle of the Depression when a lot of those churches couldn't pay him cash, they'd give him a part of a hog. They survived off their garden, which isn't very different from the kinds of Haitians I worked with in the hills of the Dominican Republic who got a little bit of money from picking coffee or cutting sugarcane, but they ate their garden and sold the extras. I'm not a good gardener. Why not? It's not the skill set that I've been... I'm living in this tiny little narrow slice of history and, and my formation has afforded me and disabled me things because of it. So how do we evaluate the relative strengths or weaknesses of these systems that are in competition in some ways with each other? And I talk, I'm thinking about the illusory momentary debunking detection. Because you've been groomed to hear some of these stories and say, there's not an old man in the sky. We are circling around the earth and the space station has not seen any. Is that really what Christianity has taught? It's what a lot of Christians believe. And Christians are a little fuzzy on it. And that's no surprise to me. I'm neck deep in Christians all the time. I've got a pretty good idea of what they do and don't know, how well or well not they've been formed, the ways that this society has formed them. And truth be told, many Christians I bump into carry more ideas from Hollywood producers and writers than they do from Bible studies and Bible. And in any given church, any given pastor could say, these people know their stuff and these people are just kind of coasting along. But their community is affording them some things. And they have other things to offer the community. We all have our place and are doing our thing. But this little debunking trick that goes on, if you know a little bit more, it's kind of a cheap trick. But it takes a little bit of work to undo the debunking. Well, scientific models are tremendously powerful, but possess some clear disadvantages compared to traditional religious spiritual models. Scientific models are equally metaphorical. I can put that in a tweet. Scientific models are equally metaphorical. Tectonic plates. 
So look up the word tectonic. Tectonics from Latin. Techno, um, technocus from ancient Greek. Technocos. Oh my. The Latins borrowed it from the Greeks. Borrowed a lot of things from the Greeks. Pertaining to building. That's what we're talking about. The process that controls the structure and properties of the Earth's crust and evolution through time. Please tell me any of those words that are not metaphorical in dealing with the things themselves. And here's the thing. What is the thing itself? Now you've got combinatorial explosion. Because, in fact, to isolate it, now you have the category problem. What's the category problem? Watch for Vakey. He'll tell you what the category problem is a lot better than I will. That, in fact, there's this enormous metaphorical model that talk about tectonic plates. What, like dinner plates? No, they're like these flat things. That's why we picked the word. And some scientist that was looking at these things had a gestalt moment built on the metaphorical world. He lists oh, tectonic plates. And I'm sure if you go back over the science, people had other names for these things. And this one stuck. Why? Because it sticks in with the rest of the language that we're embedded in. It's that other cultural track that's going through the system. Your scientific model... Science, it's, it's all metaphor, boys and girls. It's all metaphor. You're not going to get away from it at all. Truth. Do a little word on, do a little study on that word. Do a little study on almost any word. This is where you go all the way back to the Jordan Peterson stuff. We act things out before we can speak them. Logos. All the stuff Jordan Peterson raised is connected here, but... He said something about pronouns, and we lose our minds. Come on, people, we can do better than this. Scientific models appear highly subject to cost, corruption, corrosion, and decay. And we see this. We lose scientific-type thinking. We lose procedural thinking. I can't do what my grandfather did. Now, I know some things my grandfather didn't. I can do some things my grandfather couldn't do. I work on a computer. I work on a smartphone. My grandfather could garden. And again, I really appreciate what Brett Weinstein said to Benjamin Boyce. Go to a YouTube channel and learn how to garden. Here's the thing. Why are schools shaped the way they are? And Brett was complaining about schools, and rightfully so. And again, I've made this point in previous videos. I have nothing but esteem for Brett and the reason he went to Evergreen, to Evergreen, what is it? Is it uh, Evergreen State University? If that's what, or college, I don't know which it is. He understood some of this stuff and he wanted to form students. Professors, where does that word come from? Why, a hundred years ago, did some schools still today, demand that professors profess religious belief. Read George Marsden's book on the story of, well, why theology was the queen of the sciences a hundred plus years ago. Religious spiritual models are better suited to human group psychology. More durable. That's why there are so many of them. And that's why thorough-growing atheists are always a minority. Takes a lot to be one, so congratulations. But I'm afraid from a Darwinian perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, unless we decide to cull, 
those who can't handle it, you'll always be the elite. So if you find some comfort in that, there you go. You'll make lots of money doing it too. Then I had a conversation with my friend Brett. Oops, I still have the poor spot. That's two, two T's in that Brett. And I met Brett when the publisher, I have publishers sending me books now because my channel gives some people a little bump in their book. I'm not telling publishers to send me books. He had more books sent to me than I can read. Brett wrote this little book on transubstantiation, which was like, oh, wow really educated me a lot in terms of some of that theology and history and philosophy and I found Brett to be a really good conversation partner so he's been on the channel a few times and it's going well I'm sure he'll be on again he wanted to talk about conspiracy thinking I'm like Meh. so then he and I started to talk about conspiracy thinking and he was quite he was kind of more of the pastor he was very practical about this is how we'll help our people not think in this way and I immediately began to think, I was watching Rebel Wisdom and began to think, ooh, these, these connections go long and deep. There's a lot to think about here. And the more I talked to Brett, the more I realized there's a lot to think about here. This conversation really got me thinking about agency, community, motivation, and durability within the scientific frame. The scientific frame, or image, always imagines itself durable because it's public and open. You know, water keeps freezing more or less at the same temperature. More or less, the speed of light is within certain variables. Big G gravity is within certain variables. Again, I go back to Rupert Sheldrake saying, why, if these are constants, do we need an organization that tracks them? Boy, that's a scary question. We don't know. See, what we have are pretenses of a monarchical vision. There's another little Vander Clayism. What is the monarchical vision? Well, it's the view from nowhere. It's the imagination that we can see the world as it is. It's biased towards imagining we see objects and not threats and opportunities. It's a particular way of thinking. Now, this is something that scientists strive to achieve in order to form knowledge, sort of like Odin. They pluck out one eye and they see only with the scientific image. And that's a very powerful thing. But what philosophers are beginning to realize is... Taking out the subjective means certain blind spots in our view of the world, and you have to put it back in if you want to see the rest of the world. And so in Brett and Heather's 16th Darkhold podcast live stream, again, someone, after he says stuff, people, i got a lot of overlapping constituency here. People send it right to me. Brett was talking about conspiracy theory, so of course i got to go and listen. Trying to use scientific tools and language, and Brett's trying to clean up some of this stuff, and I thought it was helpful. But again, now let's pay attention to our biases. He is a scientist, and so he's using these scientific tools, trying to sort of smuggle them into the manifest image and say, well, maybe this can improve our language. Now that's fair. Because science is always smuggling the manifest image in. Tectonic plates. You mean like dinner plates? So there's a lot of smuggling going back and forth. But if there's Jesus smuggling one way, there's scientific image smuggling the other way a lot. And you kind of have to pay attention to spot it. 
And you kind of have to have an idea of Wilfred Sellers and this grand distinction he offered. And it's, you know, all models are false. Some models are helpful. And figure out what are we, what are we, what are, what are we missing here? When it comes to massively complex systems, you're living. <laughs> when it comes to massively complex systems, you're living in massively multivariable interplays mitigated by statistical analysis. What do I mean by that horribly written thing that I should have proofread and I didn't catch it when I did? That's what we're living in. Massively complex, massively multivariable. When it comes down to me, the question, will I die if I get COVID-19? I don't believe I've had it. Will I die if I get it? An honest doctor will say, I don't know. And what's he going to look at? Statistics. Okay. Uh, diabetes? No. Blood pressure? Not on any blood pressure medication, but always tends a little high in my family. Try and keep it down with diet and exercise. Um, lung stuff? All seems good. Uh, age? Mid-50s? Um, they'll put a little number as to whether I would die. Well, how about viral load? Well, how where are you working? Very quickly, the the variables come streaming in and there are many, 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 many variables to try to answer and predict, predicting is a big deal here, predict in the future if COVID-19 will take me out. And if someone wants to run the math, well, they got to ask me a lot of questions. Now, while we know that some things about the virus and some binary ways of killing it on surfaces and avoiding droplets, yada, 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 bleach, wash your hands, wear a mask, on and on, even the question of morbidity is complex. So someone goes into the hospital and dies of coronavirus and gets tallied that way. Well, why? Well, because they went into the hospital and they had these symptoms and they died of it. What about age? Well, yeah, they were older. What about Diabetes. Yeah, they had diabetes. Why did they have diabetes? Well, now suddenly the multivariables stream in. Was there a family history of diabetes? How much Coke did they drink? Huh? How many sugary beverages did they put down? How large were the serving sizes? How many times a week? Yada, 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 yada. Were they a smoker? Were they killed by COVID or by the cigarettes they smoked, or by the cola they drank, or by how often they went to McDonald's, or by how often they sat in a chair and talked at a computer and lived a sedentary lifestyle because people are demanding more hours of video to fill up their little days. It's multivariable. And the scientific tools are really cool. But pay attention to what we're doing when we're using them. We're in a sense sort of Remember back in the old days, and I am old enough, so I remember, and maybe someone on a TV show would meet a Hollywood director and they'd do something like this, you know? Let me try and do it. Uh, yeah, make a little square. Oh, look around. Well, what are they doing when they do that? They're limiting the field of view and saying, well, if it's just COVID, or if it's just diabetes, or if it's diabetes plus COVID, or if it's diabetes, now we're going to branch out family history and lifestyle choices and very quickly, the combinatorial explosion just boom. So what killed them? Everything. Why do we focus on COVID? Well, relevance realization. Again, go back to Verveke. Relevance realization. Well, the COVID was relevant. And I agree. 
but notice the limitations and notice the science and the manifest image. Now, lucky for us, we're in the middle of a salient, massive multiplayer pandemic simulation. It's a good time to talk and think about these things because it's all pretty salient to us. Okay, I'm going to throw another line on you. Myth is the JPEG is a JPEG of being. Well, why is that? Well, Strawn, who I'm giving a little bit more fame to all the time, he's the one that put me onto the Verveki stuff. Um, he sent me an article, which was a clipping from Charles Eisenstein's work. And I bumped into his blog before and have read his stuff. Good writer, good thinker. And then I noticed oh, he's been on Rebel Wisdom a couple times. And son of a gun, if David Fuller isn't posting videos that are just sort of keeping track with mine. Why would that be? What spirit is at work behind the scenes? So two popular blog posts asking penetrating questions about the whole frame. The first one about control, an epidemic of control. And the second one about myth or agency, which will be very relevant to what we're doing. He makes the point in the first article, Coronation, in the face of world hunger, addiction, autoimmunity, suicide, and ecological collapse, we have all these problems taking, killing, hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people a year and now suddenly COVID comes along and whoo, stop heaven and earth, get the planes out of the sky, stop going everywhere, we're going to lock down because we're going to stop this thing. Why? Why this? Why now? He wrote this back in March. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just a question. It's a good question. Why all this? Why now? Why don't we stop all this stuff for all these other threats that we know? Well, that's because there's nothing external against which to fight. Nuance that a little bit, but important point. Our go-to crisis response, all of which are some version of control, aren't very effective in addressing these conditions. Well, COVID might be killing people because we didn't stop them from aging. We didn't fix their diabetes. We didn't stop the, well, behavioral thing. Maybe they had a bad childhood, so they eat at McDonald's. I don't know. We didn't stop it. We can't. It's too granular. Our go-to response of all of which is some version of control aren't very effective in addressing these conditions. Now along comes a contagious epidemic, and finally we spring into action. It is a crisis for which control works. Quarantines, lockdown, isolation, hand-washing, control of movement, control of information, control of our bodies. Hey, I've been locked down just like everybody else. I come to my little office. Well, I've been making so videos, I can't do house calls now. Because most of the people I do house calls with, I shouldn't visit. They shouldn't be opening the door. So here I am, making videos for all y'all. That makes COVID a convenient receptacle for our inchocate fears, a place to channel our growing sense of helplessness in the face of the changes over making, overtaking the world. COVID-19 is a threat that we know how to meet. Gavin Newsom kept saying that. We're going to meet this moment. We're going to meet this moment. Well, there we go. This is a threat we know how to meet. Unlike so many of the other threats, COVID-19 offers a plan. Our civilization's established institutions are increasingly helpless to meet the challenges of our time. 
how they welcome a challenge that they can finally meet and and a life-threatening challenge i'm not a skeptic here and he was accused of being a skeptic because of this but he's just asking the questions how eager they are to embrace it as a paramount crisis how naturally their systems of information management select for the most alarming portrayals of it how easily the public joins the panic embracing a threat that the authorities can handle as a proxy for the various unspeakable threats that they cannot today most of our challenges no longer succumb to force our antibiotics and surgery fail to meet the surging health crisis of autoimmunity, addiction, and obesity. Our guns and bombs built to conquer armies are useless to erase, to, to erase hatred abroad or keep domestic violence out of our homes. Our police and prisons cannot heal the breeding conditions of crime. Our pesticides cannot restore ruined soil. COVID-19 recalls the good old days when the challenges of infectious diseases succumbed to modern medicine and hygiene at the same time as the Nazis succumbed to the war machine and nature itself succumbed and so it seemed to technological conquest and improvement. It recalls the days when our weapons worked and the world seemed indeed to be improving with each technology of control. Notice how quickly people went into war language when the pandemic happened. And yeah, the pandemic has killed more people in the Vietnam War, more Americans. If again, all the other things we've talked about. What kind of problem succumbs to domination and control? The kind caused by something from the outside, something other, capital O. When the cause of the problem is something intimate to ourselves, like homelessness or inequality, addiction or obesity, there's nothing to war against. We've tried the war on drugs, the war on poverty. We tried those and guess what? Poverty won, drugs won. Now we're still fighting those wars, but for the most part, we lost when the cause of the problem is something intimate to us oh, we may try to install an enemy blaming for example the billionaires vladimir putin or the devil but we miss key information which is the ground condition that allows billionaires or viruses to replicate in the first place if there's one thing our civilization is good at it is fighting an enemy we welcome opportunities to do what we are good at, which prove the validity of our technology systems and worldviews. And so we manufacture enemies. How do we manufacture them? What did we do when we locked down? What did people immediately begin to think like? Religion. They thought religiously. What they began to use was their very capable, imaginative abilities to begin to imagine is there COVID on this surface do i need to wipe it down that person looks scary they might have COVID. why because they don't look real good because they're poor or homeless or you know we got to immediately got to do something with the homeless well the homeless guys sleeping out here are bathed in sunlight doing social distance all the time i'm not sure these guys are really COVID threats out here although they're pretty scroungy and there's feces around and they're drinking a lot of alcohol, which isn't helping. But there it is. I don't think they're COVID. But all those triggers, we begin to think religiously and we respond according to all of these things built into these systems from a very long time ago. 
Thus, we single out COVID as, as a call to arms, reorganizing society as if for a war effort, while treating as normal the possibility of nuclear Armageddon, ecological collapse, and 5 million children starving. Because COVID seems to justify so many on the totalitarian wish list, uh-oh, there are those who believe it to be a deliberate power play. It is not my purpose to advance that theory nor to debunk it, although I will offer some meta-level comments. And he does read the article. But notice how it was just a medical emergency triggered something else in us. What? Where did we get this machinery? Why are we thinking about COVID? And we sort of do. We talk about it this way. And if we're talking about it this way, we're thinking about it this way, we kind of personalize, personify the virus, don't we? Watch your language. Control obscures the massive work on pathway restraints we normally do. It obscures the JPEGing we are always doing with the acceptance of Coca-Cola obesity, McDonald's heart attacks, and the fallenness, now we're into religious language, of the world. And our agency detectors are going off like mad. If you know anything about religion, it should be no surprise. But then suddenly, well, we're going to try and make everybody into a cut-rate scientist. Tom Holland, in an unbelievable broadcast with a, an Australian theologian and an Anglican cleric, and Justin Brierley basically said, I can't believe the way the churches are responding to this. They're just out there giving medical advice. Well, you can go to my channel and see what I've been saying. I've been giving medical advice too. But, point well taken, Tom Holland. What's going on here? Now suddenly we're going to correct everybody's thinking by making them all scientists. Day late and a dollar short, baby. Conspiracy thinking is engaged. And it's not going away. Our agency detectors are going off. And we're trying to figure out agency. And that's exactly where Charles gets things right. So now a second video with David. I'll play a clip and I'll do some commenting on that. The most persuasive explanation that I've heard of that kind of the institutional decay that I think has happened to a lot of our institutions. We put out a film with, with Eric Weinstein talking about how since the 1980s, what a lot of these institutions have done have effectively once you politicize an institution you take it away from its main from its main function you now when i talked about the cost corruption decay of these scientific models these scientific models are depending because they're highly they're highly costly they're they're very unnatural they're a very different way of thinking they're very powerful i can don't get me wrong i'm not doubting them but they decay quickly because they're built on these institutions and what rebel wisdom and eric weinstein and brett weinstein are talking about and the whole idw is their concern that the underpinnings of these institutions are eroding and this is this sort of then becomes the nexus between the religious institutions that brought us through the centuries to here and Tom Holland's concern that 
Well, when the religious underpinnings, this, and again, my last video, when this one religious layer, which is under the political layer, which is, which is under the, the institutional layer that is, that is spending all the money to keep these institutions going, does it all collapse at once? It's a scary question. Especially when you say, no, that religious layer, that's, that's nothing. You're going to start with politics? That's not promising. No, we'll start with science. But how much, how expensive, how enduring is that model? Really? You get people jockeying for hierarchy within it for reasons other than that they're good at doing the thing that that institution is, is designed for. And I think there's some sense. See, this, this is actually an, an interesting parallel because I think that's, that's the felt sense that I think a lot of people are picking up. And that's why I think, it, that's what I think the metaphorical truth of a lot of the conspiracy, like the overarching conspiracy narratives are, is that we are... Interesting use of that phrase right there. We have the, some very, very deeply corrupt, fragile, hollow systems. And you look, for example, I look at um, The Wire, David Simon's The Wire, which he called a meditation on the death of America where he looked at like what happens to the police force when you're basically uh, just trying to meet the stats rather than to do your job. The parallels between the police and the drug gangs, you get trapped in these systems of incentive structures. And that essentially, and then he looked at the media, he looked at teaching, he looked at all of these different systems and said, they're all kind of being hollowed out at the same time. And my sense is, we, my sense is that this is what people are picking up on a real felt sense level, that something is... In other words, contra this, I gotta learn how to say this word, this caricature, caricature, I gotta, look, I gotta look this word up. I didn't plan on saying this word. That the rationalist celebrity atheist would like to promote that we sort of sit back with our monarchical vision and then we make rational decisions about how we operate. And every time they talk that way, I think, have you met a human being? Do you know how we are? Do you know, have, have, you, have you read Thinking Fast and Slow? Have you seen all the ways we fool ourselves? And this is how we are. Is deeply off in yes. society. And it's not, too, it's not too big a leap to say, okay, well, who is doing this? And who is, who is gaining from this? I, I totally resonate with that, that, that the conspiracy myth comes from a very authentic, accurate perception that we got that word authentic. Oh boy, what what words? What words are we not using when we say that word? Our institutions have betrayed us. That they're not serving their declared interests. That they have a secret agenda. Uh, that they are the. Okay, and that's really interesting that our institutions have betrayed us. They're not serving their declared interest. Well, what's their declared interest? Well, for the government, it's supposed to be the welfare of the people, but that's tricky. Welfare, do all the does any given policy thing affect everyone the same or are some people and I mean this is this is what we're dealing with. And why is it that we imagine that the the, the government is for the welfare of all the people. Well, that idea, because if you look at, you know, ancient, if you look at ancient empires, well, kind of the whole country is for the welfare of the pharaoh. And 
they say that's the way it's supposed to be. I had a conversation with Dr. Gordon Menzies. He's an Oxford-trained economist who's written this book on Western fundamentalism. It says, well, guess what? These Westerners, they all believe in democracy, free markets, and sexual liberty. Those are our fundamentals. Presuppositions. It's what they are. And here we've been formed to imagine it's the job of government to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, enlightenment. That's cool. Where did the enlightenment come from? Keep drawing the things back. The puppets of something to create us. So our agency detectors go off. Things aren't going well, and we're looking for someone to blame. That they're not serving their declared interests, that they have a secret agenda, uh, that they are the puppets of something. Personally, I don't think that that, the, that they are the puppets of a group of evil conspirators. I think it's more accurate to say that they're the puppets of a paradigm, of a mythology. Uh, a puppets of a principality. A puppets of something that, sort of like school spirit, we, it's controlling us. It's a lot bigger than the spirit of whatever little high school you're going to, but that actually does scale up to the district because there's commonalities there and to the city and the state and the nation and the world and the zeitgeist and, you know, these things scale up. But what I love about what Charles Eisenstein does here is he's able to basically, within secular terms for people, say, hey, there's agencies above us that are operating that sort of like school spirit we participate in. We don't really control. People are trying their best to control it. There's propaganda, there's marketing, there's money, there's government, there's, there's police, there's laws. They're trying like crazy to control it. We don't control it. What is it? Well, myth. Yeah, myth. It's because you don't know enough religious language. It's a principality. That's probably a better word for it. It's it's something akin to Santa Claus or Uncle Sam or all kinds of things. Or Greeks would Greeks and and polytheists would have all kinds of words for it because it's spirits of of a set of interests of a system of an economic system um, of an ideology of control. You know this is. What I wrote about in the other essay, you know, that, that civilization defines progress as the increase in our ability to uh, impose control upon the world. Bingo. Because one of the things I've been following, the Eric Weinstein, Ross Douthat, Peter Thiel, and then when Benjamin Boyce talked to Brett Weinstein, Brett kept talking about progress. And as someone who does a little bit of thinking about these worldviews, it's like, Tell me of this progress. How will you know it when you see it? And and Brett's done some real thinking and talking about that that's been helpful to me. But what did he just say? Because he said something really important about progress. And the other as an ideology of control. You know, this is what I wrote about in the other essay, you know, that that civilization defines progress as the increase in our ability to uh, impose control upon the world. Progress by the increase of our ability to impose control around the world. So it was progress. The again, read Age of uh, read um, Alchemy of Air sometime. 
great book. So it was progress when we figured out we, <laughs> who's we, um, when the Germans figured out how to fixate ni to fix nitrogen from the air. So now suddenly you didn't have to go down to South America for all that guano. You could get it right out of the air. And, oh, by the way, you're going to upset the nitrogen cycle. All these algae brooms, all that runoff through the Mississippi River, all that potent stuff we put back in the soil because we take it out of it, all that nitrogen that came out of the air that can be used for the, for the munitions of two world wars in the 20th century, progress is our ability to control. Now, anybody thinking about this not too long will say, hey, wait a minute, we thought, well, libertarians say control ought to be located at the level of the individual. Oh, okay. Um, others who are socialist, well, control ought to be, control is best and safest, towards what end? Best and safest located in the hands of well-meaning government officials. Well, maybe we'll throw in the Enlightenment there. Consent of the governed, or Plato, the philosopher king, or, or this progress is not so easily discerned. Now, we might be able to recognize that my, my current cell phone that has a Snapdragon, Snapdragon um, 855 in it is better than the cell phone that I had that had a Snapdragon 820 in it because it runs a little faster and so on and so forth but as we scan these are tiny little things there we can find progress there but was it really progress to ditch the horse and wagon for the internal combustion engine well that's kind of depends on where you're standing and what you're paying attention to and was it really progress to move from glass containers to plastic Plastic don't break when you drop them. Plastic are lighter. You use fewer fossil fuels to transport them. Yada, yada, yada. Progress is something that's really hard to know. Especially when, and I think he's right here, we tend to measure progress as the degree to which we have control. Who's we? What kind of control? This is going some scary places. No wonder our agency detectors are going off and to control the other, to control matter, to control society. To, to control the other, to control matter. This is a, and I hate using this word, but I'm using it correctly, I believe. This is a spiritual question because what matters is, see, the reason I hate using that word is because most of you heard it wrong when I used it. This is the thing behind the scenes that is controlling the other or the matter or everything else nine times out of ten when someone comes to me because they have a relationship problem what is it i can't control my husband i can't control my child i can't control my mother oh so in other words the best thing would be control well you can kill them because that's about the ultimate control we have over other human beings. What we really want to do is colonize them and turn them into our robots and switch them from group B over to group A. So they become simply matter. And again, go back to Verveke, Aristotle. Matter, what is that word? Matter comes, comes from wood. Because you can make wood into a cup or a spoon or a ship or a chair or a table. 
It bends to our wills of Group B things. So no wonder everybody's agency detectors are going off. They should be going off. And now maybe we'll ask some deeper, harder questions about, well, what is metaphorical truth? Is there any other kind of truth that we actually colonize or can appropriate? What is myth? What is spirit? What's really going on? Control the barbarians, the terrorists, control the ability that civilization defines progress as the increase in our ability to uh, impose control upon the world and to control the other, to control matter, to control society, to control the barbarians, the terrorists, the weeds, the bugs, the bacteria, etc., etc. So if we are immersed in that worldview, then we're going to, it's going to look like something is coordinating everybody toward a goal of more and more control. Or if you have, say, like more mundanely, if you have a system that's set up um, a, a medical research system that is uh, funded at bottom in large part by pharmaceutical corporations who make money by patenting drugs, then you're going to have a lot of money available to study patentable things and you're going to have and that money will have, will have infused the entire system so that if you're a graduate student looking for a good research project those will be the ones that are available and that'll be the kind of learning that will be applicable to something that advances your career so it's not that you know you're in the in the pay of nefarious powers and you're this venal corrupt fake scientist who's just in it for the money. It's like, that's the whole cast of, of the system. Like, I don't want to say that conspiracies never happen. I mean, they suppress information like that happens. Look at Vioxx. Like, so, so I'm not like, I'm not like being Pollyanna here and saying, oh, they would never ever do something that corrupt. Go back to my conversation with Brett Sockold. Well, Genesis three. It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy story. Why do why why are there so many conspiracy stories? Because it's built into the fabric of seeing the world as subject to spirit. Say, so, well, I'll go the other way and I'll just see the world as we're going to get to that way because that's the alternative and you're going to be less happy with that way. They do things that corrupt. Um, I think that that but, but I think more often it's unconscious and systemic, which means that you'll never solve the problem by removing the bad actors. In other words, and he says this nicely in his essays, oh, oh, would it be that some bad actor that somehow Bill Gates, who after he made all those billions, could think of nothing better to do than start the Gates Foundation and get try and address things like malaria and poverty. That's a sure sign of a bad actor. But he started this because Bill Gates wants to run the world. Well, Bill Gates had enough money to run a good bit of the world if he wanted to, but I don't think that that's driving it. What happens is that we participate. Think about school spirit again. We participate unwittingly. Let's say you're a kid in school and something bad happens and you're pissed off and you... You break a drinking fountain, okay? 
And let's say the school doesn't have much budget and that drinking fountain stays broken for two or three weeks. Every time everybody walks down that hall, they see that broken drinking fountain. And suddenly that broken drinking fountain and the inability to address school spirit begins to lower the spirit of the school. Lots of stuff go into this. We don't control it. We certainly participate in it. It certainly shapes us. Do we have the language? Where can we find the language to actually, the language and the practices, to actually engage in these issues? Yeah, my, my friend Peter, uh, I think he said something like becoming, a, we all have to become conspiracy theorists as some kind of initiation. Mm -hmm. That it's part of a kind of world initiation. Like, and we have to, obviously we have to question consensus reality and I think those of us who've been in sort of what you we don't have a better word than spiritual it's exactly the right word it's exactly the right word why that word it's the only word uh communities to to kind of to go with that but those of us who've been in those kind of communities questioning consensus reality is is such an important part of that an awakening to something deeper, an awakening to some deeper sense of what humanity is and what our potentials are. But then I guess the struggle, the difficulty is not to collapse into another fixed narrative on the other side of that awakening, which is what I've seen a lot of can happen very easily once we've had those experiences. We can have a kind of shattering of an old worldview, but what we often do is we reform an equally solid worldview around some new material that then just kind of it's, it's part of the same problem in a way. Now, the thing is, we have to do this. That's the process. And go back and look at my videos about transformation. It's the process where you, you can't just take it all apart and leave it apart. You have to live. And so you now we're back into the hero's journey. Now we're back into Jordan Peterson, where you take it apart and all these metaphors. You go into the underworld and you try and figure out and you reemerge transformed. But then you realize that your new worldview also needs addressing because, well, it's always being, needs to be calibrated by all the data you're getting. So back down you go and you keep doing this. Rather than allowing ourselves to remain open to uncertainty and open to you can't remain always open. You have a left and a right hemisphere, and they're both playing their parts. And in fact, it's, okay, I'm more ver fancy Verveke words. It's opponent processing. It's back and forth, back and forth, chaos order. It's, it's this process by which we continue to learn and grow and recalibrate and renew and grow and discover. It's an important process, and we want communities that can facilitate this. And we want a fair amount of openness, but it can't be just open. There needs to be structure. Because the world is too complex, not only in the physical world around us, but in the thought world. And so you're always building on other systems that have done a lot of the things for you. And of course, science does that too. Does it all the time. But again, go back to the, the bit about the the scarf in my last video that Karen was wearing that if something wrong gets early on in the stitching the pattern is wrong you gotta pull it all out you gotta re-put it together the journey totally and often that new worldview is actually the old worldview in coded form it's just a different form of the same thing now who's not believing in progress 
Well, maybe sometimes it is progress. Maybe sometimes it isn't progress. How are you going to know? We have greater degrees of control. Now, many people, when they undergo this change, in fact, are looking for greater degrees of control. Uh, alcoholics, people, that something has happened in their life that their life is no longer sustainable in that new way and they have to go and find a new way of, well, so part of that, again, control itself isn't the enemy. It's just having the right control, not too much control, and again, triggering all the Jordan Peterson stuff. There's problems all around here, but we're looking for the right way forward. And the real initiation or like maybe I will say another stage of the initiation is you, you, you go from the default consensus reality to, uh, you know, a conspiracy theory or a cult, you know, it could be anything that's, that's the receiving room for people who have left the old story. And then you're like, actually, that's not working either. Like that has some of the same limitations. And so you go to another one, another one, and that process is the, is is it's a series of stepping stones into the unknown who says your life is not a story and you're not following a hero's journey or have we just been simply programmed by that way well where did that programming come from well watch my videos about story and reality and my recent sermons about this into the place of being comfortable with uncertainty and looking at the parts of you that 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 you've kept at bay by offering them certainty. What comes up when you allow yourself to be in uncertainty? Now here's the thing, you need to be solid enough to actually engage with uncertainty because when you get overwhelmed by uncertainty, well then you're no longer you. It needs to be both. There needs to be a solid core and variable in order to face the change. But what is that core? Where does it come from? Hence. What's the secret sacred self that, well, that's sort of a, what is that, Gnosticism? I mean, how can we find our way through these things? When you allow yourself not to know, that, un that requires undoing some pretty deep programming. In our school system, for example, you're rewarded for knowing. You're rewarded for producing the correct answer. Not knowing is, that's, that's a new habit. And we have an entire scientific ideology that says that, that humanity is converging closer and closer to the literal objective truth, that we are approaching a theory of everything, of the universe, and a, a technological system that, that says, once we order uh, and uh, uh, affix a number to each object in the world and each person in the world, we convert everything into data, then we, we will be able to Who's we? Who's we? You rationally and optimally manage. Because here's the thing, because the world is so full of people, we want to do this to other people. He's back to the other. <laughs> We're back to the same process, remember? And now he's debunking it, but he's showing the process. This world. So this, this um, prejudice toward knowing and the punishments we've received for not knowing these, these constitute um, a, a deep programming that really takes some courage and some community uh, to, to undo, to be okay with maybe nobody knows, and it's okay not to know for a while.
I really like that, Charles, because it, it seems that that's one of the failure conditions right now of politics, of journalism, of all these different areas, is this people who are claiming to know things, like this air of certainty that everyone seems to be coming in with, and it's just falling apart. It's just being obviously challenged because, especially under the influence or impact of so much novelty that we're seeing with the pandemic, anyone who's in a public, any kind of public role who is claiming certainty and they, they sort of claim certainty like a kind of defensive posture, it, everyone is starting to see through that now. And it, it feels like that particular mentality is, is what we're seeing being tested to destruction right now. I think that's a very good point. The difficulty is you don't want Anthony Fauci coming on TV and saying, I don't know. <laughs> what do you know and what don't you know? So again, this is a common thing that people are like, well, it's all the certainty that's the problem. It's the dogma that's the problem. Well, no. It's figuring out what you know and what you don't know and where those things lie. And now I'm saying, now science is really helpful helping you to know some things, but that stuff is embedded in a whole bunch more not knowing. Now it's the affectation, like I come from, from sort of traditional media and I think that more than anything is what people pick up on and really distrust is this sense of the voice from nowhere, this sense of instant expertise on a subject that probably the journalist has just started researching that morning all of those things like that air of defensive certainty just seems to be something that's being that that to me is like right at the core of what's being undermined and dissolving right now yeah especially when it comes from the elites uh from from you know people with, uh, with in positions of social authority because I think with very, very good reason over the last few decades, people have been in growing distrust of the elites and of their arrogance. Uh, you know, if, if, if our society has had continued to improve. Okay, pay attention. Now we're talking progress again. Improve, how would we measure this improvement? But, but we have a sense of it, but you know, again, we're, we're back in this weird space where we kind of know improvement. We kind, but, but it's, and again, our, our minds are sort of these, I have this capacity to, to look at multiple variables and to kind of weigh it. We often get it wrong, but we have a sense of it. But there we are. You know, had continued to improve, you know, from the post-World War II era, uh, then maybe we would trust our elites. If, if uh, you know, the ecology of the planet were uh, healing and getting better, if social inequality were improving, if, um, if... Again, now notice his list. Now here's the thing. I, I often hear, well, the problem is dogma. Talk to Gordon Menzies. He says, I, I, everybody's dogmatic. Everybody's dogmatic about some things. You have to be. There needs to be something in order for there to be uncertainty about something else. You can't have just uncertainty. You can't have just certainty. You have to understand where we're at. Uh, people's psychological health were improving. If people's physical health were improving, if our social ills 
were dwindling for the last 30 years, we would probably trust our elites and their pronouncements of what is good for us. Our social ills? But none of these things have been happening. Instead, we've seen growing inequality, growing insecurity, growing psychological distress. He's not talking to Steven Pinker, is he? Depression, anxiety, uh, declining health, autoimmunity. This sounds like Verveke's meaning crisis. Um, uh, addiction. <laughs> no, no. So, so somebody comes and says, listen to us. We have your best interest at heart and we know what we're doing. Our lived experience does not confirm that in the way that it might have in 1965. We're still dealing with the middle of the 20th century. Now David's going to sound like he listened to my last video, but he didn't have the chance because I posted that on Monday. I think it's I think it's centrally important to recognize where we are thinking in religious terms. Ah, see, he's understanding something about the religious mode of speech versus the political mode of speech because um, Charles has been talking about all of these big things and it's like, well, that's that's the religious mode of speech, isn't it? That's, that's beneath the political. And how frequently we're, we're thinking in religious kind of mythological language. Because my, my sense is with, with the most, again, we come to this problem with, with terminology, but when I'm thinking about kind of all-encompassing conspiracy theories, for example, David Icke uh, talks about a murderous cult who are running everything. You have QAnon and the Cabal. Like those for me feel qualitatively, whatever the word is, the sort of all-encompassing religious narrative, they're in, on this side of it. What I find really fascinating... Oh, a little skeptical about the religious. I'm not sure where he's going with this. Well, actually, I've seen it. ...about those is that even though you could argue that there's very dark material in there, there's kind of the idea of sort of... Um, evil, evil cults, evil small groups of people, they're actually rapture ideologies because they're saying, if only we could expose this defined group of people, then the better world is just the other side of that. If we, we could only, only kind of overthrow the cabal, if we could only expose this evil cult, and it could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, utopia is at hand. I was about to say something here, which I'm gonna to have to comment on, but and what he's about to say here is that, boy, this is a this is a this is a Christianist pattern that we're seeing now. Of course, now you're talking theology and my level of converse, and I'd say, well, we could have a very interesting conversation about that particular pattern as to whether or not. And now we're into the weeds in terms of competing schools of Christian theology, like the deep Christian roots of a worldview like that. I think have to be really made explicit. And, and so you can say, oh, these are deeply Christian. We got to do something else because everything but Christianity, thank you. Seen for, for and, and David was in my church. And David and Ollie recorded a worship service at Livingstone. So he is not anti-Christian. Okay, let me say that. But the point here is that, and I think it's similar to Tom Holland's point, and maybe these guys should get Tom Holland on because... I'd like, you know, David, you know, grew up in in a church like many people in the West. And, you know, David has had the journey that he's had. But, 
you know, the point here is that there's been, actually what David's really pointing to is dispensationalism. But my channel isn't fundamentally about picking fights with other Christians about the poor ways they read the Bible. Most of you wouldn't want to, wouldn't care to sit down and listen to that all day. For what it is, because um, I'd love, if, if only the world was that simple, if only it was that easy to, to achieve utopia. Right. And if you sit down and you ask yourself, say, okay, what would be the world done right? Well, watch The Good Place, Upload, Westworld. We don't, we don't even have any confidence we can do that. Anyway, watch the whole thing. Um, it's only 35 minutes, and it's a both both. It, Charles Eisenstein is worth listening to, and both of those essays are outstanding, and the interviews with David are outstanding, and it's good stuff. So agency detecting, we're, we're ex, our expectations change and readjust our suspicions of what we're really talking when we're talking about conspiracy. What is a conspiracy? Now, a little bit later in the article on the conspiracy myth, Charles tells this story. The British scientist Rupert Sheldrake told me about a talk he gave to a group of scientists who were working on animal behavior to a prestigious British university. He was talking about his research on dogs that know when their owners are coming home and other telepathic phenomena in domestic animals. The talk was received with a kind of polite silence, but in the following breaks, um, all six of the senior scientists who were present at the seminar came to him one by one, and when they were sure no one else was listening, told him they had all experiences, all had had experiences of this kind with their own animals, and that they were convinced that telepathy was a real phenomenon, but that they could not talk about that could not talk to their colleagues about this because they um, they were all so um, because. They could not talk to their colleagues about this because they were all so straight. When Sheldrake realized that all six had told him the same thing, he said to them, Why don't you guys come out of the closet? What closet are you in? Come out of the closet. You'd all have so much more fun and be so much more honest and probably help in terms of progress. Now, some of you are thinking, he's gone off the woo end. I'm still a Dutch Calvinist, okay? But pay attention. He said that when he gives talks to scientific institutions, they are nearly always the scientists who approach him afterwards, telling him they've had personal experiences that convince them of the reality of the psychic or the spiritual phenomena, but they can't discuss it with their colleagues for fear of being weird, for fear of losing status. Look at my last week's sermon about stories. I told a story about a young man and a visitation and an oracle and Reed Macbeth. I mean, in this, in this secular principality, we lose status by saying what we know. That's called corruption. That's just Sort of like Solzhenitsyn. It's tyranny. And Jordan Peterson's crime was being honest. And that's why Sam Harris 
got the heebie-jeebies around Jordan Peterson because he wasn't following the script. This was not a deliberate conspiracy to suppress psychic phenomena. There wasn't a cabal of scientists reinforcing them, but they understood that something, some spirit is in the air that is manifesting itself in the silence of these scientists and Rupert Sheldrake, who has decided he was willing to suffer all of the loss of status that has gone along with the choices that he's made. These six scientists didn't convene beforehand and decide to suppress information they knew was real. They kept their opinions to themselves because of the norms of their subculture, the basic paradigms that delimited science, and the very real threat to damage of their careers. The persecution and calumny directed at Sheldrake himself demonstrates what happens to a scientist who is outspoken in his descent from official scientific reality. Search in YouTube the TED Talk of Rupert Sheldrake that was never allowed. It's there. You can watch it. It's a great talk. Do I agree with everything? No, I'm not a scientist. I haven't read Rupert Sheldrake's book, but I've come across him enough. But what they're pointing to is exactly what we're talking about. What happens to a scientist who is outspoken in his descent from official scientific reality? What happened to Brett Weinstein in his descent from the totalitarianism at Evergreen State that Benjamin Boyce has documented? This is how people work. Now, some of you may say, well, that's not supernatural. And I'd say, do a little research on that category, too. Maybe look at Brett Weinstein talking to Alistair McGrath about that category. Alistair McGrath, who has advanced degrees in both theology and science. Supernatural? What do you mean by that word? Well, okay, let's push that word aside. Let's keep using that word, spiritual. So we might still say that a conspiracy is afoot. But its perpetrator is a culture, a system, a story. I would say a spirit, a principality, a power. Now some of you know the Bible say he's using Pauline language. Yeah, I am. Culture, system, story, acting as group B. Can a story act like a person? Is a story a spirit? Can it colonize you? Oh yeah. Can it inhabit you? Can it possess you? And again, by the way, this Sunday is Pentecost. And you might wonder, that's one of those weird Christian things that we don't celebrate. We do Christmas, we do Easter, New Year's kind of gets adopted by Christians, even though it's not really in the Christian calendar. But Pentecost, wasn't that the Jewish festival of booths? And then, and then there was like tongues and flames and, and, interpret, and, and people understanding language thing. And Jesus, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. But it's a line of demarcation that suddenly an entire group of disciples got something that they didn't get not too many days before and they got it all at once and it's sort of like me and David Fuller are barking up the same tree and David's a busy guy I don't think he's watching all my videos if any and 
I haven't always kept up on everything Rebel Wisdom puts out. I'm just little old me. And I spend so much talking to this computer, I don't have unlimited time to listen. But here we are. What are these things we're talking about? Watch Jordan Peterson, Politics, Religion, and the Intellectual Light Web, where Michael and Karen talk about basically what Jordan Peterson talks about in Personality and Permutations 2017, Personality 12, Phenomenology, Heidegger, Ben Swanger, and Boss. If you've got time for only one Jordan Peterson video, watch that one. It's really good. It's really helpful. Eisenstein goes on, a call to humility. Have you ever noticed that events seem to organize themselves to validate the story you told about the world? Bias, oh yeah. Blue Subarus, oh yeah. But more than that. The selection bias and confirmation bias explain some of that. And I think something weirder is at work as well. When we enter into deep faith or deep paranoia, it seems as if that state attracts confirmation events, confirmatory events to it. Yeah, it does. Reality organizes itself to match our stories. Why would that be? Watch Peterson, Personality 12. You get allergic to supernaturally stuff? Eh, he's got some from below arguments that can shed light on it. In a sense, this is a conspiracy, just not one perpetrated by humankind. That might be a third truth that the conspiracy myth harbors, the presence of an organizing intelligence behind the events of our lives. Now this morning, I did, and I hope the recording went right, because I thought the question and answer session was outstanding. A number of you have been asking for question and answer sessions, and I put a call out on the Patreon, and not too many, no questions got answered. I haven't checked it recently. I don't know if anybody did. I've decided I was just going to do it with these discords, and so I was on the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Discord, not the Bridges of Meaning Discord, where I sort of call my Discord home, but the... So, so don't feel like I'm cheating on you, all you bridges of meaning peeps. But the awakening from the meaning crisis thing, and I did question and answer there, and it was really an outstanding question and answer, but John Verveke and I are sort of working at this problem from both ends. I'm working on person because I'm a theist. He's working on non-person because he's a non-theist. But we're both sort of moving towards the middle and saying, what kind of organizing intelligent behind the scenes might this be? And it gets more interesting because what kinds of things not only maybe influence me to see the world in a different way, that's what Karen and Michael were talking about with respect to change your values, you'll change your world. That's what Jordan Peterson was saying. But whenever Jordan Peterson was asked, not by Sam Harris backing him down on stage about the resurrection. He'd say, you know, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Because I don't really know how high this stuff may go. Yeah, stay open. Stay open. The world is a bit more plastic than we imagine. Now, there's a lot of scientific image smuggling. And again, here's Daniel Bonavac's excellent little lecture on Wilfred Sellers' work 
Um, they manifest in the scientific image. Every smuggler operates within the manifest image, even if they're trying to smuggle in the scientific image. We live in the manifest image. That's where our persons act. That's where the choosing we do. That's why every time I hear someone saying, we are going to control the world, well, part of the meaning crisis is because we've deconstructed ourselves and we are part of the whole show and we are part of, well, if I'm just, well, now you're smack in the middle of a meaning crisis. The manifest image is where ought functions. The scientific image is where is functions, but the amount of experiments that we can do science with is small and very cautious compared to the amount of decisions we have to do in our lives. And the world is, for that reason, very spiritual. Humans employ the scientific image. Science says, not science doesn't say anything. Science doesn't talk. Humans use science. They wield it. They employ it. So it's always nested in the manifest image. You cannot see science itself without seeing it. Thomas Nagel. It's where philosophy has bumped into consciousness. That's why panpsychism, they're trying that as a way around it. As humans employ the scientific image to figure out how to solve problems. Go back to Verveke. But that goal state, that's part of the manifest image. You're not going to get there from science. Science isn't going to tell you how to get through Jordan Peterson's cornfield. Science will give you options. Well, there's a bear in that part of the cornfield, or there's a, st a statistical likelihood of meeting a snake there. But again, the world is big, and so we use statistics and all kinds of things to whittle it down. But then we develop, if you try to nest the scientific image or nest the manifest image in the scientific image, you get to Sam Adams. And that's why I call him Patch. And if there ever was a conversation that demonstrated why or what he does, it was his conversation with Brett Weinstein. It was manifest in his conversation with Jordan Peterson. But why couldn't Brett get anywhere with Sam? He just switches one eye to the other. Scientific image, manifest image, scientific image, manifest image. But he doesn't know he's doing it. That's why on one hand, he's out there preaching with all of his heart to give up religion. But on the other hand, saying, you have no agency, just enjoy the movie. Well, you know what? A lot of movies really stink. And life is really hard for a lot of people. And then you die. Not a lot of movie enjoyment. Well, you can do tricks. No, you're doing the manifest image you just keep switching your eye patch back and forth you're going to have to try to learn how to see out of both eyes instead of developing this patch amnesia so which is nested in which if the manifest image is nested in the scientific image you're stuck in a sam harris movie and you're going to have a meaning crisis if the scientific image is nested in the manifest image you'll be seeing persons all the way up. So I got asked a question actually today, and again, I hope to, I hope to be able to publish this question and answer from the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Discord. Well, Paul, 
is, well, I actually realized that I asked this question in a previous video. Is personhood detection merely the perceptual limit of our pattern recognition? Could be. Could be. But now let's read a little theology and a little historical theology. I've been reading Hans Borsma's Heavenly Participation. Because school spirit is not something we control, but we participate in it, and it's moving the world in ways that we're not controlling. And it seems all of our efforts to find control are always thwarted. Humans appropriate all truth metaphorically and manage it personally. So I have to, if I have to put my answer to Brett and Stephen Wolford into a tweet, there it is. Humans appropriate all truth metaphorically and manage it personally. This has actually a long history, which is detailed and laid out in the theology and philosophy of the West. Hans Borsma lays it out here. Indeed, this is one side of the coin of analogy. There's a kind of similarity between God and the world. God number one. The whole earth is full of his glory. But the coin has another side as well. The doctrine of analogy does not just argue for similarity. It also insists, insists on infinite difference between creator and creature. Now, if you believe that you're the product of a material world, then it's your creator and your creature. You can't appropriate truth any other way than metaphorically and manage it personally. That's your box. In fact, dissimilarity is the main point of the doctrine of analogy. And this is what Brett um, Sockold ran through with me. Although there is a certain similarity between the way God is good and the way creation is good, nonetheless an infinite difference remains and never decreases, not even slightly, between the goodness of God and the goodness of creation. Therefore, the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, insisted that between the Creator and the creature, so great a likeness cannot be noted without the necessity of noting a greater dissimilarity between them. In other words, we always fall short. And again, go ahead, substitute, be a pantheist of sorts, and substitute... The world plus information. Daniel Dennett gives away the show on Unbelievable and nobody calls him on it. The doctrine of analogy basically claimed that the connection between creation and creature is merely sacramental. In other words, when we see the tree move, we're understanding spirit. Yes, Creation truly participates in its eternal um, Christological anchor, but this participa participation is strictly a gift of grace and in no way erases the creator-creature distinction. All right, a little bit of theology for you, but if you want more theology and philosophy like that, I recommend Hans Borsma's Heavenly Participation. But again, these are theologians dealing with stuff. And a lot of people are allergic to that. But what they're finding, and this is what David Fuller is bumping into, they're, di they're digging and asking, what's below politics? It's religion.
It's religion. That's why you go down to the religious language. And, well, persons all the way up. That's what Jonathan Peugeot says. We cannot help but respond as if there is a group B. And even Sam Harris has to agree to this. We need to live as if there is a group B. Even if, Sam, you're locked into your whole show materialism that C.S. Lewis dealt with in the 1940s. We cannot help but respond as if there is a group B above us. And this terrifies us. And the best expression of this I got from Eric Weinstein, who said, it's better if there is no God, because if there is a God, you have to worry about what's on his mind. That is the terror of unbelief and what motivates it. And why Jesse Ventura says, well, Christians grip onto religion because they're scared. Yeah. But guess what? Guess who else grips onto irreligion because they're scared? Christians are scared that maybe the world is just chaos and they don't matter. And so religion addresses their meaning crisis. But atheists grab onto atheism because what if there is somebody on the other end of the line? C.S. Lewis, read his quotes about pantheism. What if God is a lover, a husband, a husband, a hunter? What if he does know us each by name? What if he does have a plan for our life and that plan includes pandemic and cancer and disability and racism and discrimination and all sorts of things that are miserable about this world? And what if our lives are short and ugly and brutish? That's terrifying. Can we know that God has our best interest at heart? Well, I'd have to move my patch over and put on my preacher face. And so, well, there's rough drafts on this channel and my church channel on the other channel. But that's the question of philosophy and religious history. What is that spirit we are dealing with? And spirit is the best word we have, even if you don't believe in God. Something's moving the trees. Watch, lost. Something's moving the trees. And it's awfully big, and we're awfully small. And our agency detector is going off. Maybe it's there for a reason. Maybe we look at what's the spirit that is dominating the scientific establishment in the university that Brett is complaining about, or the government, or... Ross Douthat talks about the stagnation of government and why nothing can move. The only way to relate to it is as if it's a person. Now, again, in my conversation with John Verveke, he says, that's not, you're not proving ontologically that that's true, and I will concede that. But I also then, in a sense, present the ontological argument. And the ontological argument says... And sort of C.S. Lewis's argument from desire, it's an awfully sad world if that spirit moving the world isn't good and better than us and better than we can imagine. You might say, well, maybe that's wishful thinking. Maybe it is. But I wished I had a little more money when the pandemic came around and I got a stimulus check from the Donald. How about that? So, you know what? There we are. There we are. Why 
am I not impressed with, oh, I just lost my PowerPoint. Why am I not impressed with metaphorical truth? I don't have a problem with the metaphorical side. I have a problem with the other side because it's not what you think it is. And the world is more complex and it's nested in the, in the, in the manifest image. Now, is, personal, is personhood detector merely a perceptual limit our, of our pattern recognition? Perhaps. But the other path is either determinism or this tyranny of control, where we now are under control. Who's we? You think that's going to put an end to conspiracy theories? In other words, the more power human beings have, the more our, our conspiracy theories are going to be about real people. Because what we're really trying to do is colonize other people. So, yeah, I'll choose my theism and I'll work the problem from this end. But what about the religious stuff? Well, words that fudge, religious is an awfully fudgy word. And I'm trying to work it from the right and work it from the left. And there'll be more videos about that. Religious people think their rituals matter. Do they? How? Read what Jordan Peterson wrote about sacrifice. I was so interested that that came up in Karen and Michael's. Listen to Jordan Peterson's Easter video at the very end of his biblical series on his channel. Well, the future and the past are so full of people. Purpose is always, group B things are always sneaking purpose in. Religious and political. Higher, I want to get higher resolution on that interrelationship. The question, of course, and it always is, how should we live? What guide can we have to move forward? How can we know which way is forward? You know, Sevilla's project on um, equality existence in terms of value and piercing. Um, how should you live is a manifest image question. And be, we'll be watching out for scientific frame smuggling or scientific image smuggling. Missed that one. I corrected them. Just like we'll be watching out for Jesus smuggling. We'll do the best we can in knowing what we're talking about. Yeah, this was long. Thanks for watching.